chapter 6, and uh, we're going to be focusing today on verse 9, but it's important to get the context of what's happening here. So we're going to back up uh, to verse 5, and then we're going to read through 13. So this is what uh, Jesus uh, preached in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray. And your father who is in, uh, pray to your Father who is in, the, in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done as on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Father, uh, you are a good and kind, gracious Father. And Father, your word tells us that you give us good gifts. And so, Father, I pray that you today would give us the gift of knowledge of how to pray, a desire to pray. And Lord, that we would see our lives transformed and the lives of those around us transformed because of you working through prayer. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, throughout my adult life, I have had a lot of roles and titles uh, among them have been music teacher, uh, a salesman. I've held the title of being a sandwich maker, a server, a music minister, solo pastor. I've been an associate pastor. I have been a senior pastor, um, a son, son-in-law, brother, grandchild, and husband. But among all the roles that I have had throughout my life, there is one that I love more than any other role that I have ever had, and that is of father, of being a dad. I take seriously my call to be a provider and a protector and a shepherd to the spiritual, social, emotional, uh, economic, moral, and material well-being of my children. There's nothing that I would not do for them. They are my children, and I love them dearly. Today we're going to talk about our Heavenly Father. 
And in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus radically reorients our understanding of the fatherhood of God as well as our understanding of prayer. Not only does Jesus help focus and prioritize what prayer should look like in our lives, he also recalibrates our understanding of who it is that we are addressing our prayers to. For many of us, our prayers are nothing more of, uh, than an emulation of a child sitting on Santa's lap. We have a list of things that we want. And uh, we want God to give us or to change uh, in, in our lives. Some of us may try to bargain in the same way. I've been a good boy all year. <laughs> or we'll bargain by saying, I will do better. I, I, I promise. And as soon as we get off the lap, we go about our day. We forget all about the one that we brought our request to because we're so busy being focused on the things that we want or desire to have our demands met. In the Lord's Prayer, however, uh, Jesus teaches us that prayer was never intended to be the lamp that we rub in order to get a subservient genie to come out and grant our wishes. Rather, prayer is meant to be the means by which we communicate and commune with God. This God is not to be an afterthought or a means to get our request answered. And in uh, the fact that Jesus places verse 9 at the very outset of this example of how we ought to pray should show us that God is the a priori focus of our prayers, our attention to his character, his beauty, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his love, his power, and everything else that is part of who he is ought to be the starting point of any sort of interaction with him. And as Jesus begins teaching us how to pray, he not only realigns our understanding of prayer to be God-focused and God-centered, but he teaches us how to approach him. And how we are to approach him is deeply personal and theological. Notice that he doesn't start by saying, Creator God, or God Almighty, or even Lord. Rather, he teaches us that we are to address God in prayer as our Father. God cares about how we address him. Of all the roles and titles that the Lord takes on because of his character and work, the one that he wants to be known for in our personal relationship with him is that of Father. So if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, then our hearts ought to cry out with the disciples in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, which implores Jesus Teach us how to pray. It's a request that Jesus loves to answer. And he does so, starting in verse 5, but our focus is in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be 
your name. So if there's anything that we need to learn about prayer, it's that we must first know the one who we are praying to. We must know the one who we are praying to. When I make a call to any customer service um, help desk, one thing that I try to make it a point to do every time is getting the name of the person that I'm talking to. I don't do that in case the call goes sour and I need to report them for any reason. But I, I want to put a little bit of humanity in them. If they say, thank you for calling such and such, this is... Edgar or whoever it is, I will respond by saying, Hi, Edgar, thanks for taking my call. How is your day going today? If they have me on the line while they're doing some research on my account or a problem, I will often try to make small talk with them. Always being sure that I use their name. And when the call is coming to a close, I will thank them by name. When the call, uh, uh, and I do this because I respect them. I respect their job. I respect their abilities. I respect their time. I've been a customer service rep before. I know how difficult that is sometimes. And addressing them in this way makes a personal connection with them. And when we go to God in prayer, it's like being connected to the ultimate spiritual customer service. However, the, the, the one that we're connected to here is not a minimum wage employee. This is the sovereign one. This is the creator of everyone and everything. This is the Lord who is the giver and the taker of life. The one who has redeemed us through the blood of his very own son. And as such, we should address him in the manner in which he has ordained for himself. In other words, we are not free to address God in any way that we please. And Jesus teaches us that when we go to him, we first should address him as our As American Christians, we are far too often a product of our worldly culture rather than a biblical one. The idea of rugged individualism runs deep in our, in our blood. And it bleeds into our faith, and it unfortunately bleeds into our prayers. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father, he is challenging our individualism. He is rejecting the notion that our faith is private, nor are we individuals, islands unto ourselves. Rather, Jesus is teaching us that when we come to God in prayer, even if we're praying with the door shut in our room by ourselves, God is our Father. When Julie and I got married... We were not just entering into a new season of our relationship with each other. We were entering into a, a relationship with our families. Her family and my family were a, were a package deal. And the same is true when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. When we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives, we are connected with his people. It's curious to recognize that in the Lord's Prayer here, there's not one example of the first person singular. Notice what it says. 
But the word I isn't there. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This doesn't mean that we don't go to God with our personal doubts, our fears, or our concerns, our requests, our joys, and so on. But it is meant to reorient us into the idea that we are in this life with other people. We are connected in that way. People who are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. One of my fondest memories of uh, our, our brother Daryl Kringen, who is now with the Lord, was when he was acting chairman uh, of Emmanuel between 2016 and 2017. And at the time, our, our, our church was, was struggling with a lot of uh, corporate issues and when he came up to this pulpit to lead a business meeting, he opened up with some of the most powerful words that he could have opened up with. He said, as we go about this meeting, we need to remember that we are not just a church. We are a family. And a family sticks together. And it totally changed the direction of that meeting. And I think that it is still reaping the blessings of his simple words today. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we are to pray in light of Jesus' care, not just for us as individuals, but also in light of his love for the church. Therefore, we ought to pray, Our Father. But notice it also says that we are to address him as our Father. He is our Father. This is perhaps the most controversial part of the entire prayer, and it has been ever since Jesus taught his disciples it back in the Sermon on the Mount. A number of years ago, there was a German theologian, I'm going to butcher his name, Jakob uh, Jeremias, who combed through the Old Testament, as well as available rabbinic literature from all Jewish sources. Uh, his result was quite interesting because it wasn't what he found. It's what he didn't find that piques my attention. When he went through all of this literature from the Old Testament and through all the rabbinic materials that he could find, he couldn't find even one example of a Jewish writer or author addressing God directly as Father in prayer until the 10th century A.D. That's the 900s. Yes, God was referred to as, as Father, but it was never a personal address in that. And he looked further into the prayer of all the prayers of Jesus throughout the New Testament. And in every single prayer, except for one of Jesus in the New Testament, he always referred to God as Father. And what that tells us is that Jesus was making a radical change in how God's people should address God. When Jesus taught his, his disciples to pray, Our Father, it would have been scandalous to the religious elite. How dare he call God our Father? This is blasphemous. 
It was insinuating a close relationship that they didn't believe that you could have. Addressing God as Father creates some contemporary issues as well. Uh, to call God the, uh, our Father is difficult for many of us because we've had harsh fathers in our lives. And so we think about the idea of Father, and it, it sort of turns us off. Still to some, calling God Father is considered a microaggression since it reeks of male domination and patriarchy. To combat that, some have gone as far as changing the language of how God is addressed in Bible translations. For example, in 1995, Oxford University Press released the New Testament and Psalms, an inclusive version, in which God is, is omnisexual and the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father, Mother in Heaven. Some traditions have scraped father, scrapped a father altogether and replaced it with mother and, and complete with, with female pronouns. Both of these contemporary and, and uh, both these contemporary challenges ought not to hinder us from praying to God our Father. For those of you that have had terrible experiences with your, your earthly fathers, I implore you to see God not as your father, but our Father, the one who is par excellence in love and care and provision. He is everything that you should have had in an earthly father and more, and it is, he is at your disposal. And reclassifying God's preferred gender is unfortunately a consequence of our contemporary culture. Theologically speaking... God has no gender. He is neither male nor female. He is spirit and he has no body. But in light of that, God has chosen to reveal himself in masculine terms. And we need to remember that when it comes to God, we don't call the shots. We don't get to address him as fits our culture. Can you imagine going to the White House or going to Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle and saying to President Trump, Madam President, or saying to the Queen, Your Majesty the King, God is the King of the universe. And how dare we as creation enter into the throne room of God and call him mother or anything else that our imagination would come up with. He is the father of all who come to him through faith, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is not the father of those who haven't. Those who have not come to him in faith are not his children. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So God's fatherhood and our sonship and, and, and being daughters is exclusive. We have become sons and daughters because God has chosen to adopt us that way. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 he chose us in him, in Christ, that is, before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 says this. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God adopted us into his family. Therefore, you and I, we have all the rights and privileges of being his sons and daughters. And so we call on him as father. Henry Francis Light was a hymn writer that, uh, that penned uh, fairly famous hymns uh, such as Abide With Me or Praise My Soul, The King of Heaven, or Jesus, My Cross I Have Taken. And he had a terrible father. His father and mother split off, uh, split, split apart. And after they split apart, he was sent off to boarding school. And from then on, his, uh, his father would write letters to his son. And he would not sign them as your father. He would sign them as your uncle. Now, he wouldn't even allow his son at that point to call him father but rather uncle. And yet every one of his hymns had this great fatherly image. To him it was warm and comforting, which shows that the power of the gospel and the scriptures to break down even something so basic as to what it means to have a father. And that is what calling on God as father does. It shows that even in the worst circumstances, we still have a father that deeply and perfectly cares for us, who wonderfully provides for us, and shows us what a true father is like, one who knows our every needs before we even need to ask, one who delights in giving us good gifts. He is the one who promises us a future inheritance that the world cannot provide or take away. This is our Father in heaven. But in addition to knowing who we are praying to, we also need to pray that God would be honored above all. We need to pray that God would be honored above all. One of my character flaws, and that's one of many, is that I'm far too easily annoyed at the simplest of unintended insults. There have been a handful of times when I have told my name to someone that was taking information down, and they have asked me, they've said, Michael, is that, uh, is that uh, E-A-L or is that A-E-L? And I, 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 I try to graciously inform them that it's A-E-L. I mean, I could get into the Hebrew etymology if I wanted to, 
but I know that in my mind, I hate the fact that I'm thinking, seriously? Like, this person doesn't even know how to spell Michael? Like, I don't think I've ever seen anybody that's E-A-L. I'm sure they exist. Or when I've seen publications that want to shorten the word microphone and they put M-I-K-E instead of M-I-C. Why am I annoyed at this? Because I am prideful. In that pride, it's, it is a question of whether or not my name is honored. How sick is that? Pride is a character flaw I have, but I'd be willing to bet that if any of your names were misspelled or mispronounced, you might have that same uh, inclination at annoyance. Yet when, our, when it comes to our relationship with God, rarely do we think about honoring his name. The Bible teaches us that he takes his name very seriously. In fact, the, 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 third, the third of the Ten Commandments is that you shall not take my name in, in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In ancient Israel, people would have been stoned to death for taking the Lord's name in vain, for dishonoring his name. Yet how many of us cringe when we watch a television program and they drop God's name in an unholy manner? How many of us just watch it and don't think anything of it? How many of us in our daily, everyday vernacular will slip into some sort of uh, term that dishonors the name of God and not even think twice about it? So now that Jesus has uh, established that we're to address God as our Father in prayer, he now gives us the request that should come from us. And he says in the second part of verse 9, he says, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed is not a word that we, that we hear very much anymore. We do hear it once a year. Uh, it is the, the, the root of the word Halloween. But it literally means to make holy. Or to consider as holy. So when Jesus here wants us to pray that God's name would be hallowed, he is not making a statement. This is a request that we are to honor and utter. But we are to bring that request to God knowing that you and I have no ability to make God's name any holier than it already is. In himself, he possesses all the glory and goodness that could ever come his way. He is perfect in holiness and in splendor, and we can't add any glory to his holiness or his character. So when we ask that his name would be, whole, uh, would be on display, we are asking that it would be displayed in our lives and through our church and in the world. It is a foundational request that we have to ask before we can ask that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what does it mean when he commands us to pray for God's name to be hallowed? It's important for us to realize that when the Lord talks about his name, he's using it for shorthand, for his character, and for his attributes. 
It refers to his, his public reputation. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11 says, For my name's sake, for my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory will not give to another. Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 14 says, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Psalm 106 verse 8, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Now, I could have gone on and on about uh, the uh, uh, different scripture passages that God talks about, that his passion is for the ultimate fame of his name. But I think the point is pretty clear here, that God's chief purpose, his modus operandi, is to glorify himself. God champions his glory, his name, his reputation, above everything. And therefore, his name ought to be hallowed. God already possesses a glory that can't be added to. The heart of this prayer, then, is that we as his children would so speak and think and act in ways that show that we value and treasure him above everything. Al Mohler writes, our, church, our chief concern in prayer is not our own comfort, but God's glory. And this is to be done in our personal lives as well as the church. Our chief goal in this life and the chief purpose of this church is to make God look good. And we need help. And so we ask him for that. We desperately need help in life. We cling to Jesus, not only in his redemptive work on the cross, but also in teaching us how to pray. God the Father has made himself known to us, and we can connect with him. He is our Father in heaven. His name must be revered in our lives and in the church. Let us, therefore, incorporate these foundational aspects into the very fabric of who we are as his children. So, brothers and sisters, let's go to God in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you are a gracious God. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we thank you that you do not hold our sins against us, but that you have freely, freely given of our sins to Christ Jesus, who died on our behalf, who took upon himself the wrath that we deserved so that we could go free And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to hallow your name, 
that your name and your cause and your purposes would be the, uh, the modus operandi of our lives. Change our hearts, Father, to want to glorify you in everything. And Lord, it's with the understanding that we come in the authority of your Son, Jesus Christ, and ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information about our church, you can find us on the web at www.emmanuelmora.com or on Facebook by searching for Emmanuel Mora. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to partner with us in our mission, consider giving financially to our ministry. You can conveniently give right from your mobile device by texting any word to 320-313-1950. There are options for one-time giving or recurring gifts on a schedule that you set. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Mora, Knowing Christ and Making Him Known.